Hello, I'm Eric Chabro of GovInfoSecurity.com, and today we're talking about cloud computing with Thomas Soderstrom, Chief Technology Officer at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory in Pasadena, California. Welcome, Tom. Thank you very much, Eric. It's a pleasure to be here. To start off just briefly, tell us a bit about cloud computing initiatives at JPL and National Aeronautics and Space Administration. Two years ago, we here at JPL looked for what are some of the emerging IT trends that we should be paying attention to to try to get ready for them. The idea is to be have it up and running by the time it becomes mission critical. Cloud computing was one of those seven trends. So two years ago, we started looking at it, and of course, there was a lot of hype around cloud computing. That should come as no surprise to anyone. But two years ago, it was a little murkier. So we decided to take an approach, a very simple approach, that we called keeping it real. And keeping it real meant that it needed to be real to the mission of JPL and NASA, which is not to do IT, but to enable the people who put uh, rovers on Mars and explore outer space. So we wanted to focus on mission applications and make it a collaborative approach where it's a team effort between the JPL IT organization, the missions, the ones that put the rovers on Mars, et cetera, and our industry partners. So that's how we went about it, and we've had some good results. Keeping it real also meant get hands-on experience with every cloud known to man at the time and beyond. Now give us an example or two of, of some of these uh, cloud emissions. The whole point here was there was a lot of hype, and there were some benefits that we laid out, So, but also what would be the real obstacles that we would run into if we did this. An example of a successful validation of the missions was we took 180,000 images from Saturn. They uh, downloaded 180,000 images. We wanted to tile those and put a mosaic around it, so processed images. We ran it in our own lab, and it took 15 days of straight 24 by 7 processing, and it still wasn't finished. So then what we wanted to do is let's test Amazon's cloud. So we spun up 60 processors in Amazon's cloud, and we finished it in five hours for a total cost of $200. For us, that was a real validation. We took the real mission processing that the missions would do, and we were able to start and stop it went from weeks to hours, and uh, we were able to validate the cost, and we turned it off after it was done. So that was on the mission side. We also used it for outreach and crowdsourcing. We, for instance, partnered with Microsoft on something called Be a Martian. And if you type in beamartian.jpl.nasa.gov, it takes you to a website. It's essentially a game, and it lets us recruit citizen scientists. And what they can do is to peruse a quarter of a million pictures from Mars and identify craters and hopefully find other evidence of water. It's a game and it works very well. And all of that code and all of the images are stored in Microsoft's cloud. We did the same thing in Google's cloud where we are focusing on the next generation of explorers. So we partnered up with UCSD, University of California at San Diego, and some minorities college students wrote code, partnered with us for elementary school kids. And those elementary school kids can now tag images on Mars and compete with each other. We have some other example in Amazon's cloud where we recruited basically on Eclipse at EclipseCon we had a contest where people could write code to drive a toy rover, a Lego rover, that emulated Mars. And it was fabulous. We got incredible code out of it. And also people had fun and they learned some things. Great example of crowdsourcing. Bottom line is we're keeping it real, working out really well for us. We also have applications running in private clouds supplied by Lockheed Martin and community clouds supplied by CSC Terramark and hybrid clouds, and of course we're looking at NASA's Nebula cloud also. So lots of cloud going on.
What you just described is non-strategic use of cloud computing. You weren't okay. having really any sensitive information on the cloud, ah, right? That's a, that's a very uh, impressive takeaway because that was quite purposefully. In our strategy of looking at this, we said, what could we do in the cloud? Be early explorers, get hands-on, and not hurt ourselves. We created what we call a wheel of security. And the wheel of security essentially tags the public data, then on another quadrant, it's sensitive data, and then it goes on towards export-controlled information, private information, secure and top-secret data. So what we do is we focused on the public data to start, and we're not into the sensitive data. In the meantime, we work with the vendors to try to get them to take on some of the more difficult data, and by the time they do, we'll be ready for it. What we're now doing is we've come in far enough where we're able to comfortably say that we'll be putting real mission data in the cloud, and uh, we're working with several flight project managers here at JPL because we have validated that it can be secure to do it right, and it can certainly save a lot of time and money. The time factor is a huge deal. Uh, it's more than people anticipate. That's really maybe the biggest benefit of all, that you don't have to find space in the data center, but you can just rent time right now. So strategically, we're moving forward. Your experiences working with Amazon and Google, Microsoft, and others in the public cloud are giving you a certain experience in learning how to validate data and other things that could maybe eventually be useful to deal with more sensitive information on a public cloud. In fact, that's absolutely true. With each of the vendors, we met with their security teams. We met with export control teams. They came down and visited. We visited them to explain to them what we would have to pass, what kind of audits, uh, FISMA certifications, et cetera, that we would need to pass so that they can be ready to take that on by the time we spin the wheel of security. One of the exciting examples, for instance, is Amazon's virtual private cloud. It's like a hybrid cloud, and it lets us put more sensitive data because we can encrypt it, and it's going through our own secure network to get to the data. So that's a good combination of a bridge between the private cloud, which is very secure, and the public cloud, which is getting more and more secure. So for re-emission critical data, we'll encrypt all of it. The encryption keys will not live in the cloud, but in our applications. So we feel comfortable that that will work. You also mentioned you're doing things with hybrids and private clouds and community cloud. When you Let me just ask you first about the community cloud. This would mean that you are sharing servers with Similar types of organizations. Would these be other NASA organizations? Other government organizations in this case. We have tested quite extensively with CSC's Terramark Cloud, and we're comfortable that that is uh, quite secure, and we can pass the audits that we need to pass. When you look at our real goal, in addition to keeping it real, is to run the data and storage where and computing where it's most appropriate. And the appropriateness is both in terms of security, but also in terms of cost, longevity, latency, network speed, and things like that. So what we needed to do is to figure out how to go about that. A year and a half ago, I went out looking for to buy what we call a cloud application suitability model, or a CASM, and uh, I couldn't find it. So we built our own. You basically fill out a questionnaire, the end user does, and it says, what cloud should I put my application in? So you describe the application, and this CASM, the Cloud Application Suitability Model, essentially guides the user and says it should go into this cloud. That then transfers into the IT organization at JPL, who fine-tunes it a little bit. But having this CASM is a real 
eye-opener because we can then take on more and more mission-critical information as we move forward in a more objective way and having a way of evolving it as opposed to it being somebody's personal judgment of the day, if you will. And I gather this is a process that needs to be continuously updated or not continuously but periodically? Continuously is too strong, but it's tightly version controlled, but it's moving forward very quickly. The cloud is an old, new idea. If you don't virtualize, you really can't take advantage of the cloud, at least not infrastructure as a service. Virtualization was a precursor, and there's lots of configuration control that needs to go into it. The chasm is one new way of being able to both put the application in the right place and then monitoring its performance. And what we really need to be able to do is to avoid vendor lock-in. So we want to be able to say this application currently runs in cloud A. For some reason, we are not happy with cloud A anymore. Let's put it in cloud B. And that needs to be an automatic push the button and it puts it into that cloud. And that's what our goal is to avoid vendor lock-in. We're not real big believers in service level agreements because what we really want to do is, this is so cheap anyway, that getting the money back is not the point, but being able to get the data back is the point. So having a service level understanding is better, but if it falls out of that understanding, then we'll put it in somebody else's cloud. That's why we're experimenting with multiple clouds, because they're good at different things. Initially, they're all good at something. Amazon is infrastructure as a service. Microsoft is platform as a service. Google is software as a service. But they're all going to be merging into being able to apply the whole thing. And, of course, Nebula, NASA's Nebula, is going to handle lots and lots of NASA data. Being able to have a portfolio of applications and a portfolio of cloud offerings is the key, and the chasm fits right in the middle of that. We have two other very key concepts, and we came up with lots of concepts. One of the benefits of working for NASA is there's lots of smart people, a whole lot smarter than I am. We've come up with some interesting topics. The cloud application suitability model was one. The wheel of security was another. The third one, which may be even bigger, we noticed that we need some measurable way of making progress. We needed some way of measuring the maturity of cloud. So we came up with something we call cloud readiness levels, or CRL, and that's a takeoff on NASA's technology readiness levels, or TRL. What that is, it goes from one to nine, and at a TRL, a technology readiness level, one, it's somebody's just thinking about it. When it goes all the way to stage nine, it means it's operational. So we're applying the same thing to clouds, and then we can score ourselves and make measurable progress and that was the key of CMMI, it has a number to it. And anything that can be measured can be improved. We have cloud readiness levels for the institution. For instance, can you call the help desk and get help on your cloud, whether it's inside or outside or hybrid? And there's levels one through nine there. We have CRLs, so cloud readiness levels for applications, and that's cloud, the chasm is really the key to that. Can you put the application in the right place and track it? And then the most interesting one came out of this was the cloud readiness level for the developers. What we found is that in order to really take advantage of the cloud of the future, we have to retool and change the way we develop applications. We need to mimic what the large public cloud vendors are doing, the Amazons and Googles, et cetera. Expect that some of the applications will fail and just restart them. That's not how we write applications today. So we have to think about distributed applications in small unit chunks, and that's going to take a while to get there. But it, one way of getting there is to measure it and educate around it and get the right tools in. So three cloud readiness levels, institution applications and developers. And that will help us keep this thing from being a flash in the pan, but keep moving it forward, especially since we're seeing the real benefits 
net benefits as you take all the drawbacks. And we did have some unexpected obstacles pop up. I'm listening to you, and it sounds like with the cloud, this new paradigm, if you will, of uh, developing applications, it sounds like maybe constant beta testing. You know, Google came up with the term. I don't know if they came up with the term or somebody writing about it came up with the term, but perpetual beta. When we write space applications that will live for 30 years, and our spacecraft are literally, Voyager is something like 15 billion with a B miles away. Those And it's lasted for over 30 years. Perpetual beta is a little scary, but there's something to it. And the something to it is you have to write in incremental ways these days so that you can keep improving it. We can at least keep improving the ground system side of it. Yes, I think we are looking at a perpetual beta of the clouds while it's shaking out. And we could take one of two approaches. One would be to wait and say, we're not going to do anything until it's finished. We did not take that approach. We wanted to be early explorers of enabling concepts. We tested it. And now we can then put new pieces into the cloud, the cloud matures, or as the cloud vendors of choice matures. And that's the approach we took. It's perpetual beta in sense of what we put into the cloud. Because you also write code for spacecraft that lasts, you know, literally decades, I guess, now, with some of your successes there. Yeah. It's, it's like a different mindset from one part of NASA maybe to this newer area. I think it is. One thing that we came to realize pretty early on was there isn't a thing really called the cloud. It's all different offerings with different net benefits. And the challenge for us is to figure out what the low-hanging fruit is and, and actually start using it and take real benefit from it now. And we've done that. We can take advantage of the cloud today without retooling the developers. But the future belongs to a different model of programming and partitioning and allocating. Our C my boss is the CIO of JPL. His name is Jim Rinaldi. And he coined early on, he said, what I really want to do is replace the procurement screen with a provisioning screen. And that means we don't want to buy, we want to rent. And we want to rent and change our mind quickly. Turn on, turn off, pay on, pay off. I sound like karate kid there. <laughs> I'm picturing now the, the, uh, the brush going up and down, up and down. Yeah, cloud on, cloud off. That's Tom Soderstrom, Chief Technology Officer for NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory. We'll hear more from Soderstrom in our next podcast, in which he'll explain why he believes cloud computing can provide better IT security. Till then, I'm Eric Charbro of GovInfoSecurity.com and Information Security Media Group. Thanks for listening.